0: 13, verses 7 to 16. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is on the basis of that truth that we have just confessed in song that we come boldly before you this morning. Because of Calvary, I stand redeemed. Because of Calvary and the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for me, we who were far off now have been brought near in Jesus Christ. We who were hopeless now have a future and a hope. Heavenly Father, our hearts are rejoicing within us as we meditate on these truths. And I pray that in this next hour, as we turn our attention to this passage, that you would continue to work. That through your word, your spirit would accomplish your purpose, molding us into your image. That any idols that have taken root in our heart would be ripped out That the sin that so easily besets us would be highlighted so that we can deal with it. I pray that we would not be led astray, that we would not be apathetic as we approach Your Word this morning. That we would not just be going through the motions, but that we would be taking this seriously, recognizing the privilege that is ours and coming before the Lord of the universe and calling You Father in Christ in sitting and opening the Word of God, rejoicing as the Spirit works. Accomplish your purpose here this morning, Heavenly Father. I pray that you would give me boldness and authority to preach with clarity, and with power, your Word through your Spirit, touching each and every one of our lives. Truly, our desire is that you would be glorified in this moment. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it has been a long and dark winter, but finally, football is back. College football, this is the first weekend of college football, you may have noticed that, and uh, there's probably several different teams recognized here in our, in our church body. In fact, if you are willing to say, I am a fan of Iowa State, would you raise your hand? If you are willing, you can put your hands down, if you're willing to say, I'm a fan of Iowa, will you raise your hand? If you are bold enough to say, I am a fan of Nebraska, you can stand up and walk out to the parking lot. (laughs) Would you raise your hand if you're a fan of Nebraska? Do we have any Nebraska fans out there? I know we have a couple. I know we have some Gamecock fans, some Michigan State fans. (gasps) We probably have, I don't know know what else is out there. I think we might have one Clemson fan, but I'm not even going to give him the time of day. (laughs) Uh, we have there's a lot of teams out there that are recognized and it's fun it's fun to recognize that and you had a couple of observations As you went to raise your hand, you probably didn't look around the room to see who else was raising their hand first. Am I I really a fan of Iowa State? I don't know. Who else is raising their hand? Okay, yes I am. You know if you're a fan or not, do you not? In fact, not only do you know, but probably those around you know who you're a fan of. There's no embarrassment about it regardless of how bad your team may play. There may be some disappointment, but there's no, there's no shame there, right? You're proud of your team. I bleed these colors. You, pro, you proudly wear your team colors. There's no wavering, no back and forth. In fact, for some of us, our fandom even dominates our speech, and it dictates our wardrobes. There's probably some of you where if you go and you open your drawers probably half of your clothes have the emblem or the colors of that team you like. Around the water cooler at work or at the grocery store, it dominates your conversation. Did you see that game? You can be walking in the store and see a stranger. You have no idea who they are, but they're wearing your team's shirt. And automatically there's a connection and you walk by and you kind of like, hey, yes, we like the same team. Great game this weekend, right? There's a connection there. There's a passion that cuts through all other differences. In fact, you go to a store on game day and you can quickly pick out an Iowa Hawkeye or an Iowa State fan based just on the clothes they are wearing. There's a camaraderie, a brotherly love among fans of the same team. It's exciting, it's passionate, it's fun. And yet, there's a sadness, a rebuke in all of that. Because unfortunately for many of us, who we are as fans dictates our lives a lot more than who we are in Christ. The sad reality is that many of us will plan our weekends during football season around the game on Saturday or on Sunday, but we don't give any thought to church on Sunday. If I'm able to, I go. But I am not missing that game. We are far more passionate about a meaningless sport than we are about our eternal hope. And I'm not saying that this morning just to beat you all up on the first football weekend of the year. But rather, in the sovereignty of God, This morning we find ourselves in a passage that calls us to radical identification with Christ. Stand out with Him, for Him. Be willing to take the reproach and the insults that may come with that. And really, sports is a great illustration of that. Because we have our fandom and we are willing to hold on to that and, and whatever Insults may come for me being an Iowa State fan. Bring it on. It makes it all the more fun. I'm not ashamed. And yet we're so easily ashamed of our Lord. In our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews calls those of us who are in Christ to stand fast with Christ and to stand out for Christ. Stand out with Christ and stand fast for Christ. The first thing we see in verses 7-9 to is a call to stand fast in the truth. To stand with Christ. To stand in the truth. It begins in verse 7 with a call to remember. Remember those who rule over you. Well, who are those that rule over us? There's several different things that he could be talking about here, right? Especially in this day and age when, when this passage was first written, when, when the author of Hebrews wrote this and sent it off. It could be the rulers. right? It could be the, the king, the emperor of Rome. Or in our day, the president. Those who have political power over you, they are ruling But the context of this passage tells us that that's not who he's talking about. In fact, we see the same word down in verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. Be submissive. The idea is really of those who lead. Really what he's getting at here is of your pastor's. Your spiritual leaders, those who are responsible for your soul. Remember them. Backing up, even in the larger context of where we are in the book of Hebrews, in this part of, of Hebrews, really from the end of Hebrews 10 into Hebrews 11 through the end of the book, it's very much a call to remember, a call to look forward, a call to be faithful based on all of that doctrine from chapters 1 to 10. Hebrews 11, the famous chapter, the, the hall of faith. Remember those faithful examples from the distant past. Those who have gone before you, remember them. See that God was faithful in and through them and to them. As we come here to Hebrews 13, the call is then to remember those faithful examples that are a little bit closer. Remember those faithful examples. Pastors from your past and pastors in your present. Those who have ruled over you. Those who have led you. Those who spiritually have been called to be responsible for your soul, even as we'll see in verse 17 next week, Lord willing. Remember them. In fact, in case there's any question here, he goes on to clarify who these rulers are, even in this passage. We don't have to go to verse 17, but what what is it that these people did? There's three things specifically that he notes here. And really, for those of you who are training to go into the ministry, I know we have several students with us. Take note of these. These are three of the roles of a pastor. First, they ruled over you. They had authority over you. And First Peter tells us a little bit about what that looks like. But secondly, they are those who have spoken the Word of God to you. Notice he didn't say, remember those who ruled over you. Those who had really big personalities. Who were able to just grab your attention. Those who were cool, who you just gravitated to. That's not what he calls you to remember. He says, Remember those who ruled you, those who've spoken the word of God to you. You see, that's where the authority of a pastor comes from. It's not in my experience. Many of you are a lot more experienced than I am. It's not in my experience. It's not in my gifting to speak publicly. My authority as pastor comes from the Word of God and from the Word of God alone. Remember those who have authority over you, who rule over you, those who have spoken the Word of God to you. That is the key to a faithful pastor. Again, not not a big personality, not wisdom, not likability. Those are all good things, but he is faithful to the Word of God. His authority stems from the Word of God and his faithfulness to you. Remember that. Whose faith follow. So they have authority, they rule, they speak from the word of God, and they are a good example. Follow. Follow those who have served faithfully, both past and present. You can probably think of many pastors. Some of you have been in this church your whole life. And even here, you can think of several pastors who've been faithful in the past. Maybe it wasn't just here, but, but you've had experience from all over the country. As the Lord has moved you around, remember those faithful men. Follow their faith. That might sound like a strange thing. What do you mean follow their faith? Shouldn't I be following the Lord? Why am I following a man? But really, that's a, a regular thing that even Paul in his ministry comes up time and time again where he says, "Follow me as I follow Christ." First Corinthians 11:1, 1, 1 Corinthians 4 verses 14 to 17, and Philippians 3:17. In all of these passages, he calls believers to follow other faithful believers. And Titus 1. Calling older ladies to lead younger ladies. Follow those examples. Follow the faith. So remember them. Remember those who have gone before you. Remember your pastors who are in authority over you now. They have authority. They speak the Word of God And they stand out as an example. But don't just remember them. But consider something about them. Considering the outcome of their faith. The end of the matter. Maybe you can think back to to several pastors that you've had in the past. And maybe they've already passed on into eternity. And we rejoice in that moment, do we not? When their faith becomes sights. When glory is theirs. Many people might look at their life. They probably never had a lot of money. In fact, most of them probably never even had a lot of influence. They pastored little churches here or there. Look at the impact they had on your life and many other lives. Consider the end of their life. No one would say at the end of that life that they had wasted that life because for them to live was Christ and to die was gain. Their lives aren't wasted, they're used perfectly for the glory of their Heavenly Father. Consider the outcome, consider the end. see it, and to recognize that that is what really matters. It is so easy for us to get distracted. It is so easy for us to, to wander off the path. In fact, that's the very thing that the author of Hebrews is dealing with throughout this entire book, is it not? Stand fast! What's one way you can do that? Remember your leaders. Remember your pastors. Remember these faithful men and women who have come into your life the Lord has used to to lead you, to grow you, to mold you. Remember them. And consider the outcome of their faith. And let that be an encouragement to you. In the day in, in the day out, it is so easy to fall away in little moments, here and there. It is so easy to feel useless. Like a waste of time. There's better things that I could do on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night. But consider those who went before you. Consider those who were faithful. Faithful. Consider their faithful lives and consider the outcome of their faith. Remember them and consider them. Verse 8 is probably a verse that you're familiar with. In fact, one commentator calls this a battle cry rather than a creed. And really, verse 8 is kind of what it seemed almost like it doesn't fit here, but it's a transition. What is it that gave these leaders who went before you, those leaders who stand before it, what is it that gives them the ability to do that, to endure, and the ability for you to endure? It is the fact that we see here in verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And the immutability of my Savior gives comfort to me. It gives hope. It is the reason for the hope of the saints who have gone before because they knew that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same as he has always been, and he will always be the same. He was the same in their day as he is in my day, and as he will be in the future. Let that fact comfort you, fill you with with hope and with strength to endure. Because that's where the author of Hebrews goes next in verse 9. A call, therefore, to endure. To not be carried away. As you remember those who have authority over you, as you consider the outcome of their faith and the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as you meditate on these facts, on these things that are true, Verse 9, do not then be carried away with various and strange doctrines. Don't be carried away. The truth does not change because Jesus does not change. Your hope will not fade because your Savior does not change. So don't be carried away. Don't drift even a little bit, but cling to the unchanging truth of Jesus Christ. To His Gospel. Yet it is so easy for us to sway just a little bit, is it not? It is so easy for us to start getting the wrong mindset, to start thinking, well, if I do this, and God will be pleased with me. It's so easy for us to start trusting in our own works. We would never confess that. We would never say, I'm trusting in my works, and yet, we think that way. And sometimes we even act that way, that, that I can do something to earn a little bit more of God's favor. Jesus is unchanging. The truth doesn't change. For it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Brothers and sisters, don't slip into that thinking. Rather cling to the grace of God that is yours in Christ. Here we get a little hint into maybe some of the temptations that were pulling on these believers to whom the book of Hebrews is written. We've talked about it a little bit, actually a lot, as they've been pulled back and forth, as on on one side with Rome you have persecution, the other side with Jerusalem. You have ostracization as they've been pushed to the side. They've been labeled heretics, blasphemers. It would be so easy for them to go back and to embrace the law and to embrace circumcision and to say, yeah, I still believe that Gospel, but I can do this too. I can just add this to my faith and you know, in the end, maybe God will be pleased with me just a little bit more. Brothers and sisters, that's not the way it works. To add anything to faith is to have no faith. It is faith and faith alone that saves. It is grace and grace alone that establishes. It is good that the heart be established or strengthened by grace. This goes back even to Hebrews 8, verses 8-13 to and, and 10. 12-18, 12 to 18, where the author of Hebrews has talked about the new covenant that is ours in Jesus Christ, that hope that we participate in. That passage from even Jeremiah 31. That promise there, where God says, I will give you a new heart. The law could not do it, you cannot do it, but I will do it by grace and grace alone. It's the only way for the heart to be established or strengthened. It can't be established or strengthened with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. The law, the food laws that they have, those who are so preoccupied with trying to earn God's favor with trying to to strengthen themselves before God, to establish themselves. They try so hard. They're so careful about what they eat and what they wear. They're so careful about the things that they do, and yet they don't recognize that the heart cannot be established by any kind of works or foods. But by grace alone. By grace alone. They're so focused on what they can eat and what they can do that they have missed what Christ has done. The author of Hebrews is writing to his readers and he is pleading with them, consider those who were faithful. Remember your leaders who went before you and their faithfulness all throughout life, they didn't turn back to the law. Remember, Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, he didn't command you to turn back to the law. So you don't turn back to the law. You claim grace that you've been made new in Christ by the grace of God. Do you think now that you can be strengthened or that you can grow in the Lord through your own actions? In fact, that's almost a direct quote from Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3, where Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Were you saved by keeping the law or were you saved by faith? to which the Galatians would raise their hands and stand up and boldly proclaim, we were saved by faith. But the problem with the Galatians is they thought that they could then add works to grow in the faith, to get closer to God, to earn more of God's merit, to earn more of God's attention. But this this is what Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Obviously by faith. Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you now are being made perfect by the flesh? You began in the Spirit. You were saved by the grace of God. Do you think now that in your own works that you can get closer to God? You are foolish, you Galatians, for thinking this. Don't you recognize that both salvation and sanctification are all a work of God entirely? That you have no role in that? The heart must be established or strengthened by grace. Foods have no role in that. Clothing has no role in that. Any good work that you can do has no role in that. You are saved by faith, by the grace of God. Through faith, by the grace of God. And you will be perfected by faith through the grace of God. He will bring to completion in you what He has begun. Not working with you as you add works and and God says, oh, that's a good one. By faith alone, through grace alone. So remember those who have authority over you. They have spoken the word of God to you faithfully. They have been an example to you. So consider the outcome of their conduct. Consider the fact That they didn't run back to the law. That they did not abandon the grace of God. But that they faithfully leaned fully into the grace of God and allowed Him to work in their life. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His message does not change because He does not change. So brothers and sisters, stand fast in the grace of God. Stand fast in the truth. still along the same idea, the author of Hebrews here moves forward into verses 10 to 16 with a call not just to stand fast in the truth, but then to stand out with Christ. He's still on this same topic of grace versus works. In verse 10 he says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have an altar. We here are those who are established by grace, as we saw from verse 9, those who are in Christ, believers. We have an altar. He's not talking here of a physical altar. But he's talking of a faith, of an access before God. We have a better standing in Christ. You see, the altar in the temple is what granted access, the altar is intimately connected to the religion. But we in Christ have an altar, a better standing, a better access. In fact, has that not been one of the points of Hebrews itself? That in Christ we have a better priest, we have a better sacrifice, we have a better hope. Into a better sanctuary. Where the blood of Christ is effective. We have so much more than those who serve at the tabernacle have. There, obviously, he's talking about literal priests in Judaism, in temple service, the Levitical system. They are the ones who are occupied with foods. But don't you know that you who have been established by grace, that you have a better altar? don't you know that by grace you have a better standing in Christ? In fact, you have something that they have no right to claim. You have a better priest, a better sacrifice, and a better hope, and they have no standing and no rights as they are occupied with their foods. In fact, there is no ritual, there is no work, there is no sacrifice that is effectual. It is all by grace alone through Christ. Here, the author of Hebrews uses an analogy from Leviticus 16, verses, verse 27. There's an analogy from the Day of Atonement, the sin offering. where the animal would be killed and then the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he would sprinkle the blood of that animal that had been sacrificed on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. But the body of that animal that had been sacrificed. The body of that animal was cast out. It was thrown outside of the city. It was unclean. It was removed away. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they are burned outside the camp. They're discarded. They're done away with. And therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He's using this analogy from Leviticus 16 of this animal that has given its blood for the sins of the people, as that is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and then the body of that animal is cast out. Jesus Christ also was cast out that he might sanctify the people in order to make us holy, in order to bring us to God. As he gave his own blood, his effective sacrifice that the author of Hebrews has already focused on. And he suffered outside the gate. Therefore, Let us go forth to him outside the camp, (laughs) bearing his reproach. You see the analogy that he's drawing here. Like this animal that gave its blood for the sins of the people in Israel, and then its body was cast out. Jesus gave his blood for you, and then he was cast out. He was sacrificed. He was crucified outside the gates of the city. Literally, Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem, He suffered outside the gate. And just like that animal that was discarded when they were done with it, that was dead, it was considered unclean, there was no more use for it. If you were to go and to grab that animal, you'd be considered unclean. You'd be looked, you'd be looked at as, as outside of the kid. They, they would ignore you. You would suffer the consequences of that. And yet in Jesus Christ, we have been brought near. He has suffered outside of the camp. So are you willing to bear His reproach? Outside of the camp, away from the law, away from Judaism, to identify with Him, to proudly embrace Him and the hate that comes with it, willing to be cut off. They're living that. These are those who have embraced Christ and their, their people, their kindred. They've been viewed as abominations, as outside the camp. They've left the reservation, as we would say. And yet, let us go forth to Him. Let us embrace Him. Let us bear with Him His reproach. Because the reward is infinitely greater than the cost. Who cares what they say? They're wrong. The truth doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, verse 14 draws our minds back to the end of chapter 12. We have no continuing city. We have, but we seek the one that is to come. I can bear reproach in this life because I'm living for the next life, because I am not a citizen here, I'm a citizen in heaven. Because yes, I am living in a broken and a sinful world, but I am waiting on an eternal kingdom that is mine in Christ. So I'm willing to be identified with Christ. I'm willing to bear all the reproach that comes with that. In fact, it's a badge of honor. It should be. you are Christ's and you get everything that is in him. Therefore therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Therefore, living with this view of eternity, knowing that we have no continuing city here, but we seek the one that is to come, as we bear the reproach with Christ, as we identify with him, knowing that he does not change, that the truth does not change, leaning fully into the grace of God, respond by living a life of praise. By Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. This ties even into our theme for the year of sing a new song. Lives that are marked by praise to God. It's even viewed here as a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. We have nothing else to offer. The blood of Jesus is effective. We are set free. We have been redeemed. I stand redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else to be done. So what I will offer is my praise. The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Rather than falling away, rather than living for the appeal, for the approval of today, live for more. Live a life of praise and good works. Not good works to earn God's favor, but good works in response to who you are in Christ. Continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him yet not forgetting to do good works. Praise the Lord with your lips, with your works, and with your resources. Don't forget to do good works and to share. Do good works and share. This praise, this response to God, as we live in a broken world and we wait on an eternal kingdom, living by grace alone, identifying with Christ, This is an all-of-life response with my lips, with my hands, and with my resources. In fact, it's stated similarly in Romans 12, verses 1-12, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, giving everything to Him. Do good with your hands and with your feet. Share the idea there of financially. In fact, even in Philippians 4.18, the Philippian offering to Paul is called a fragrant offering. Praise the Lord. Do good works. And then care for one another with your finances. Share. It really describes the early church as you look back even in Acts. It's very much of what they were doing. That is why we take things like a deacon's offering to care for one another. That is is why so often when, when you're sick, people contact you. Can I make you meals? Can I run to the store for you? That is a good thing. That's what the church should be doing. For such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Again, looking back to Matthew 25, verses 35 to 36, As much as you have done it to one of these, you've done it to me. Praising the Lord with our works, with our mouth, and with our finances. Why? Why? Because we are willing to identify with him and to bear his reproach. We are willing to, be, to, to totally leave Judaism, leave the temple, leave the law, to leave all of that behind us and to be thrown outside of the camp with Christ and to identify with him and to stand, stand boldly with him. We are willing to bear any reproach that will then come from Jerusalem or any reproach that will come from Rome. Because we are not seeking a city here, but we seek one that is to come. And there will be reproach because we are living in a broken world. But we are looking for an eternal kingdom. And so we cling to that hope and we are faithful. Not trusting in our works, but trusting in the same grace that has saved us to bring to completion what God has begun in us, as Philippians 1.6 tells us. It's interesting, one thing to note before we close, in this passage, going even back into the end of chapter 12, this kingdom that cannot be shaken, it's interesting that in the end of Hebrews 13, as, as he's drawing this to a close, as he's as he's bringing up this application, how then should we live? In light of all this doctrine that we've seen in verses 1 to 10, how then should we live? But it's so interesting that all throughout here, time and time again, he calls his believers, he calls these believers to whom he's written, to look to the future. Consider the outcome, the end of the life and the faith of your leaders. Consider the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consider the fact that you are not living for a continuing city, but that you are seeking one that is to come. We are to be people that are not focused on the here and now. He's continually bringing this up time and time again because He wants us to understand that we are a people who are focused on the future. We are focused on what Christ is doing on that hope and that coming kingdom. And so we live here and we praise the Lord and we do good works and we share with one another and we spread the gospel. But we accept whatever reproach comes because we are living with an eternal perspective. So I can take it. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Bring it on. I can take it. My hope is not here. My hope is there. Live with that eternal perspective, clinging to the grace of God, knowing that Jesus Christ does not change, willing to bear reproach, to identify with him,